0: Hello and welcome to the IP podcast, brought to you by Danes, one of Europe's leading firms of specialist patent and trademark attorneys. The IP podcast is all about intellectual property and how IP can add significant value to startups and SMEs, particularly when they're looking to grow and finance that growth. So if your company is investing in patents or trademarks or considering doing so, then this podcast is for you. We'd love to hear from you on what areas of IP are important to your business. So please email us at info and we'll aim to cover these issues in a future podcast. Also, if you do enjoy this podcast, please remember to subscribe for future episodes. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IP podcast. In the last podcast, we discussed what goes into a patent and the initial patent application process. But what happens next? How do you get the patent actually granted once it's been filed at the patent office? This topic really is the bread and butter of a patent attorney's role. And it's such an important topic, we're going to break it down into two podcasts to keep them both bite-sized, which is something we're keen to do. To help with this, I'm joined again by Dr. Mark Bell. Hi, Mark. Big topic today.
1: Yes. Hi, Ollie. Hi, everyone. It really is a, a big topic. And as you say, Getting patents granted and through the examination process is probably the primary reason for our existence as patent attorneys. So here at Danes, we do this day in, day out for our clients.
0: Absolutely. I think, for example, we last year alone as a firm, we put almost 4000 European patent applications into this process. So, Mark, how do we actually get these granted? As we touched on in the last episode,
1: where we were discussing how to prepare and file a patent application, you get a patent granted by satisfying all the requirements that have been set out by the patent office. There are a number of main requirements for this. So first, novelty. That is, is the invention new? So does the main claim of the patent application detail a combination of features for the invention that hasn't been disclosed publicly before. Next comes what we call inventive step. And this means, based on what was known when the patent application was filed, would someone working in the field of the invention, someone that we call the skilled person, have found it obvious to develop the invention? And to have an inventive step, an invention mustn't be obvious. There are two other main requirements, these being clarity and sufficiency. Now, clarity is to do with the claims of the patent application defining the invention in such a way that clearly defines the boundaries of what is or isn't protected. That is, is it clear what would infringe the claims of a granted patent and conversely, what wouldn't infringe? Sufficiency is... Does the patent application as a whole describe the invention in enough detail for someone who's working in the field of the invention, that skilled person, to make the invention, to put it into practice? And that's because a patent is a bargain between the inventor and the state. So in return for a monopoly being granted for exclusive use of the invention by the inventor or the owner of the patent, the inventor discloses how to put the invention into practice so that the font of human knowledge is added to. Is there anything else or is that, is that all? There are a number of other requirements, some depending on the technology of the invention, some depending on the country in which the patent application is being pursued in, that need to be satisfied. But that's really getting into the nitty gritty of patent law, which probably is only of interest to, to patent attorneys. Once then the patent office
0: is satisfied that all the requirements are met, you get a granted patent. You mentioned last time that once an application has been filed, a patent office examiner will then examine it. What are they actually looking for? Examination of a patent
1: application is the process of the patent examiner checking if all these requirements that we were talking about for a patent to be granted have been met. And the examination process is basically a conversation between the applicant of the patent application, represented by us as the patent attorney and the examiner. So to do this, from the examiner's point of view, they will perform searching of the patent literature and other publications in the field of the technology of the invention. That's what we call the prior art to see if the invention or similar technology has been developed previously. The examiner then using this works out if he or she wants to raise any objections to the patent application, essentially to see if it does or doesn't meet the legal requirements of what it takes to be granted a patent.
0: And if the examiner doesn't like something, what do they do and and what do we do?
1: If the examiner has any of these objections, they would issue a communication, something we'd refer to as an office action or official letter that outlines these issues that they have with the application. So we, as the patent attorney, would receive that communication. And in the communication, it's detailed why the examiner thinks that the patent application doesn't meet all the necessary requirements to be granted a patent. We're then given the opportunity to respond to those objections. Normally a deadline of a few months is set by the patent office that then gives us time to review the objections, discuss this with our client, decide on how to respond and then to prepare and submit that response to the patent office. And that process is repeated until the examiner is happy to grant us a patent or they decide to refuse the application and that brings the examination process to a close. And how might we respond? There are a number of options, very much depending on the situation, and that means that there are lots of different things to take into account. For example, is the examiner right about those objections that they've raised? If we don't think that the examiner's right we can submit arguments against the objections and say why we think the requirements have been satisfied and that a patent should be granted. For example, the examiner may have misinterpreted the technology of the invention. They may have misinterpreted the prior art. They may not have applied the relevant bits of patent law correctly. So it's our job to point that out to the examiner. But I should point out that when we say argue, that's not getting in into, you know, a battle with the examiner. It's just part of the normal process of a dialogue with the examiner. And so it's just us working with the examiner within the framework of patent law that determines the requirements for granting patents. There may be times, however, that we think that the examiner's got a point that their objection is valid. So instead of arguing against the objections, we can amend the scope of the the claims of the patent application to address these objections. And that helps to show why those amended claims satisfy the requirements.
0: And so what sort of amendments might actually achieve this?
1: Most of the time
0: it's done by
1: introducing an extra feature into the main claim of the patent application and this would narrow the scope of the claimed invention. And that's particularly the case for an objection to the novelty or inventive step of the invention because those limiting features help to distinguish the invention over the prior art documents that the examiner has found as being relevant to the invention.
0: And how do you decide what feature to to add into the claim? So that will depend on
1: some of the other factors that we need to take into account when we're deciding with our client how to respond. At a basic level, within the constraints of patent law, we're trying to make the patent application satisfy those requirements. But also, it's really important for us to consider the client's commercial situation. And that will differ from client to client and invention to invention. Can I ask you for an example of this, Mark? So sometimes a client might just be interested in getting a patent granted that covers their product and that's all that's important for them. In this situation, we might be happy to Make a significant limitation to the the scope of the patent claim that clearly distinguishes the claim, so makes the invention novel and inventive over what's been done before in in the prior art. And this feature might have even been indicated by an examiner to be allowable when they issued their communication. That makes for an easy response, and then we just say thank you very much, examiner. We'll we'll take our patent. For other cases, it might be more important to try and get our client to patent with as broad a scope as possible.
0: And what are the reasons for trying to get such a broad scope?
1: Generally, the reason for that in trying to get a broad scope is to try and maximise the amount of protection surrounding the area of our client's invention. And that will then allow our client to protect both their main way of implementing their invention, but also other ways that may share the same main features and advantages of their invention, but aren't implemented in exactly the same way. And this is good because it helps to stop their competitors from finding easy ways around their patent that would avoid infringement, because that would devalue their patent if those workarounds weren't also protected. And we're able to do this because a claim of a patent doesn't have to exactly describe all the nuts and bolts of a product. It can be a bit more conceptual, and so try to cover different ways of implementing a particular invention. So as a quick example, I've obtained for one of my clients a patent for a quantum computing memory system that uses an ensemble of atoms and manipulates them between different atomic states to work as this quantum memory. However, there are different types of atoms and different types of states for those atoms that can be used to implement that invention. So when we claimed this invention, we didn't specify the particular one of those atoms or states that we were using in the main claims of the patent. If we had done this, this would have meant that a competitor could have come along and used the same concept but just with a different type of atom or different type of states, and then avoided falling within the scope of our client's patent.
0: I'll take your word for it on the atoms. My my physics uh, B at O level only went so far. <laughs> but how do you actually? How do you convince the examiner that a broader claim is allowable?
1: Essentially, by submitting these arguments that I've been talking about. So in the response to the examiner's objections we would set out the reasons why we think the examiner isn't correct in their assessment of why our client's patent application doesn't meet the requirements of patent law and put the counter opinion of why we think that we're right and that it does meet the requirements. So for all these various requirements, there are associated legal tests to determine whether something is within the law or not and we would generally try to follow these tests to show to demonstrate why we're right and sometimes we'd even look at the the results of a previous court case that set a legal precedent to see if the facts of our case match those and so then that would be some extra weight behind our our arguments
0: and what if you just can't make them see your your point of view or your arguments can you ask for another examiner Generally, no, you, you you can't have another examiner. You just have to work
1: through this set process, however frustrating that might be. In most countries, you'll get a number of rounds of examination such that if an initial response isn't persuasive, the examiner can issue further objections and then we have a further opportunity to either present more Arguments or make different amendments to the claims of the the patent application to, you know, argue our case for why this invention should have a patent granted for it.
0: And what if that still doesn't work? What what, what recourse do you have?
1: If we can't convince the examiner through that written process, there are then various avenues that can be pursued, and this will depend on the. Patent Office that we're we're before in, in the different jurisdictions. For example, at the European Patent Office, when it comes to the end of the written process, we would generally get summoned to a hearing that we call oral proceedings, at which we're able to present our case in person. Though at the moment, during lockdown, th- these hearings are being held by a video conference. At a hearing, a panel of examiners that was appointed that we're representing our client before would then come to a decision based on the submissions that we make on whether they grant a patent or whether they refuse the patent application. There are then appeal procedures that can be used if we think that the decision at the hearing is still wrong. And then there are other more informal things you can do. So sometimes before an application reaches this stage, we might think that it's of benefit to discuss an application more informally with an examiner. So in the UK or in Europe, we're able just to pick up the phone to an examiner to discuss things with them and generally they're they're receptive to that. In the US, you'd need to arrange a slightly more formal interview with the examiner, but then it still gives you the chance to have a more informal chat with the examiner just to discuss with the examiner the problems that you might be having with that. And it generally helps you to see more eye to eye.
0: Okay, so it sounds like certainly in the UK and Europe, the examiner shouldn't be seen as the enemy. They're very much there to work with you to help get that application granted. So thanks, Mark. Let's leave it there for now and we can pick up on the rest of the process next time. What kind of things will that cover? I think next time we'll go into a bit more detail about our role as
1: the patent attorney in this process in negotiating with the patent office examiners. Then when the outside world will learn about the application that we filed, and what happens if someone, a competitor, for example, objects to an application for any reason. We'll also take a look at what happens after a patent is granted, as that can often be the start of the the journey. And that might need a whole separate podcast. Uh,
0: the start of the journey, that sounds ominous, Mark. Should we turn to something that kind of caught our attention recently, uh, IP technology related?
1: Yeah, sure. So something that you sent my way this week was about how improved technology, in particular automation, isn't always better. So apparently Apple has had a big push over recent years to increasingly automate their production lines when making iPhones, iPads, that sort of thing. However, they've found that for some of these tasks, humans are still better performing than the robots that they've developed.
0: Yeah, I think I think Apple spent Absolutely millions of pounds or dollars to kind of develop these ideas. But what kind of things were there that they discovered humans were better at than robots? One of
1: those things is gluing the screens onto iPhones. You would have thought that that's a fairly mundane task. And even though robots and are generally getting more accurate and reliable. They've found that humans are better at putting blobs of glue on an iPhone and then aligning and sticking the screen on. And I think that's because humans have very good feedback mechanisms that allows them to react with very fine motor skills. Now, this reminds me quite a number of years ago now of a physics summer school that I went on that was held in the Austrian Tyrol. And that's an area that's famous for its mountains and its walking and its skiing. And one evening, we had a talk about the physics of ski jumping because that's the sort of fun that physics students get up to. (laughs) And apparently, some physicists had tried to build a, a model and a robot for ski jumping, but they hadn't been able to get it to jump nearly as far as human ski jumpers. And the conclusion that they came to was that humans are very good at feeling the force of the wind on them, and then making very fine adjustments to the position of their body to maximize the amount of time that they spent in the air, something that was just too complex for a robot to perform.
0: I do do find it amazing that humans can still be more efficient than robots at tasks like putting blobs of glue on an iPhone, and that a robot can't make adjustments for wind. But I I guess that leaves the door wide open for a podcast on AI in the future. Yeah, I think it
1: definitely shows that computers and robots still have a long way to go for these type of things, but AI could well be part of that in working out the, the best solutions. Thanks again, Mark. And
0: thanks everyone again for listening. Thanks, Ollie, And as usual,
1: if anyone wants to contact me about anything IP related, please feel free to email me at mbell
0: at danes.com. Actually, before we sign off, I'd just like to mention that another colleague of ours, a partner and patent attorney, Phil Weber, has recently given a couple of webinars on the patent system and and getting patents granted. So if you'd like to watch recordings of these, please visit our website, danes.com, and go to our Inspired Thinking page and check those recordings out. Anyway, as mentioned earlier, next time we'll continue looking at how to get a patent granted and what happens post-grant. So until then, goodbye. Thanks, Ollie. Bye, everyone. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the IP podcast brought to you by Danes. If you'd like to contact us about any IP related issues, please email us at info at or contact us via LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook or visit our website, danes.com. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already.